the Endurance Asia podcast. Yo, pick your red up because things ain't that bad. Maybe you should switch the target that you're aiming at. Believe perfection is a beast that they'll never catch. So never waste another day because life moves so fast. And a dream without pursuing, yo, they never last. Another shadow of regret I try to never cast. And always tell a truthful story if they ever ask. Stop the complaining because things ain't that bad. Welcome to the 63rd episode of the Endurance Asia podcast. Uh, really delighted today to be welcoming Jack Thompson or as he's often known, Jack Ultra Cyclist, which sort of gives the game away about what he does. But Jack is just an amazing human being and a real inspiration. I came across him in an article online about his Million Meters Challenge, which he undertook last year, and you'll hear all about in the episode. Um, But, you know, more than the cycling, he is a fundraiser and also someone who's just very open and honest about his own struggles uh, and has just so much interesting stuff to say and share about his journey and I think you'll enjoy the episode just as much as we enjoyed talking to Jack. Um, Scott and I get together for a little catch-up at the end of the episode but with that here is Jack Thompson. Jack welcome to the Endurance Asia podcast. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to having a chat. Oh mate I'm i I'm I'm super excited to have you on. I I'm going to let you share with the listeners just what you've achieved in 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 the last year but um I guess I, yeah it's just it's just such a privilege to have you on. I uh, I read about what you'd done maybe a little more than 2 weeks ago. I pinged Scott about it and within a couple of minutes you and I were chatting on LinkedIn. And so I mean we started this podcast a few years ago as a kind of passion project and it's really just been an excuse to talk to people like you. So the fact that you know here we are 2 weeks later and we're able to have this conversation is great. So, so thanks for that. Um, but yeah, maybe you could just share a little bit about what your 2022 looked like. So 2022 was a crazy year. It was, uh, in a nutshell, I set this goal in the, at the end of 2021 that I wanted to climb a million metres of elevation on a bike and I wanted to try and raise a million euros for three mental health charities. And I started breaking it down. I was like, how can I climb a million metres and how do I keep myself from going you know, crazy as as part of that challenge. And I worked out that if I did an Everest a week, every single week of the year, that would give me around half a million metres of elevation. And then it was basically working backwards. I basically had to do two and a half thousand metres of elevation every day, an Everest a week, and I got one day off a week. And if I times that by 52, it gave me a million metres. So on January 1, 2022, I set off on this mission to climb a million meters of elevation on a bike. It's absolutely incredible. And, and we'll come on to it and, uh, you know, it, it'll be no surprise to listeners that you, you managed to achieve it. But it was really the culmination, I think, of, of your career, your cycling career to date. Um, so maybe we just rewind the clock a little bit and, and talk about where you come from, how you got into cycling in the first place. Yeah, so I, I'm actually originally from Perth in Western Australia. And I got my first bike at around age 13. So my brother wanted a bike for Christmas. I didn't want him to have a bike and for me not to have a bike. To be honest, I didn't really want one other than the fact that he wanted one. So I asked Santa Claus for a bike and I got one. And from there, I actually started as a triathlete. So I was swimming, riding and running. And at the time, I was a yeah 13 years old. I, was, I noticed that like I wasn't happy uh, and I couldn't really pinpoint what it was. I just, you know, I thought it was normal. Um, I was suffering from depression and by having the bike, I, you know, having the bike, having the swimming and having the running as little daily goals, 
I felt that that sense of achievement in achieving, you know, every little um, yeah, exercise feed each day, I felt this sense of achievement. And because of that, I, I found that my mental health was in a really good place. So all throughout school, I was a triathlete. And then my final year at school, I gave it away uh, because I wanted to go to university and study. Uh, I got into university and studied construction management and economics. Wasn't riding a bike, was in the gym, was partying hard. Uh, at the time, there was a construction boom in Australia. So I was a young guy. I was working. Uh, I was making reasonable money and I was still living at home. And I actually developed a drug addiction. So... My parents found out what was going on, um, basically said, unless I stopped uh, with, with the gear that I was using, they were going to basically you know, rid me from the family. Um, family being really important to me, I decided, you know, I've, I've got to give this up. So I gave it up and basically went into a very dark hole uh, of depression. I went into rehab. I came out the other side of rehab and my dad said to me, look, I think you need to get back on a bike. When you were a youngster and you were riding, you were in a really good mental place. And I sort of, I pushed him away and I said, no, I'm not interested. Like, you know, what it's like as a teenager, you don't want to listen to your dad. And I eventually said, you know, yeah, I'll get on a bike. I got on a bike and immediately I became obsessed. Like I, that sense of having a goal. Uh, and at the time it was just, you know, riding 40 kilometers in the morning before work. Having that little goal really gave me something to focus towards. Admittedly, I've got an obsessive personality. So when I do something... 100 percent is never enough it's always 110 percent and i started doing more riding and exploring more on the bike but at the time i wanted to be i decided i set my goal as you know i wanted to be a traditional racer i wanted to go and race my bike around the world i wanted to ride the tour de france i wanted to do all the things that you know as cyclists you sort of look up to um the role models and see them doing my cycling journey didn't take me down that path and I actually found that I didn't really enjoy racing. I grew up with a dad that was lucky enough to retire quite young. And when he retired, he set his mind to riding his bike around the world. And so we grew up with this dad that was always off doing these adventures and exploring. And I think that rubbed off on me. And I decided, you know, maybe I'm going to do some longer distance stuff. I want to go do some adventures. I just want to use the bike as a vehicle for exploration. And Again, the obsessive personality took over 150 kilometers, became 200 kilometers, became 300 kilometers. And I entered myself in to do the transcontinental race across Europe. And this was sort of my first foray into ultra cycling racing. And I went and did it and I just fell in love with it. I remember the first night taking off from Belgium into the dark, lights flashing. I was, I thought to myself, you know, this is the, the first time I've actually really felt alive. And I finished that race and I met my dad in Greece. He met me there at the end and he said, like, how was it? And I said, look, that's the best thing I've ever done. I said, I'm just really dreading going back to work now. And he said, well, you know, maybe there's an opportunity for you to make a living out of cycling. And I just, I sort of took that idea and ran with it. And I got back to work and I said, look, I'm quitting work. I'm going to become a professional cyclist, but I'm not going to race. And, you know, at the time people thought, you know, you're an idiot. How are you going to make a living out of riding a bike long distances? And I've just slowly chipped away at it. And it all began, I guess, the income side of it. I went and did some trips in, in Asia, in, in Thailand, actually, and wrote some articles for a cycling magazine around the riding in, in Thailand. And I worked out that if I was, you know, writing these articles for magazines and had some, um, you know, some images and things in magazines, that that was potentially space that I could sell for advertising. 
So I approached some brands, got some sponsors on board that would help to provide me equipment. And um, I sort of, you know, I, I could survive with a, without a normal nine to five job. Then it was around 2016, I decided, look, I'm, I want to document me doing something crazy. And we set this challenge of going to the Taiwan KOM event and climbing it four times back to back and basically documenting it as a film to see, you know, how did I cope? How was the, how was it all, you know, the highs and the lows of doing that? We did that and it was a real success and it, there was a lot of attraction, there was a lot of um, traction, people watched it and people were interested in it. And basically from there, it's grown over the last five or six years and I'm now based in Spain. Um, it's become a full-time job. That that dream's become a reality, which I still have to pinch myself when I think about that. And, yeah, every year I do these crazy challenges and document them in the form of films. And, yeah, this brings us to where we are today, just having done a million a million metres of bloody elevation. <laughs> Honestly, that there's there's a lot to a lot to go through there, Jack. But that is um that's a really like an impressive journey over the last few years. I'm actually like I'm interested in the genesis of it in terms of I've had uh, family members that have suffered from from both depression and addiction uh, and have been through through rehab as well. And it's almost it's almost like what's the chicken and egg in those situations? Like is it is it the is it the addiction that causes the depression or is it the depression that comes first and people sort of drive towards the addiction to escape the depression and um it seems like for you like it was noticed pretty early that you that and how did you notice that you like suffered from depression where where was it like how did you actually realize difficult to kind of diagnose in a kid you don't really expect kids to sort of like to to suffer really it was a weird one because I was I was going to school and I just noticed like I didn't really want to hang out with my mates anymore I didn't want to, like, I'd go to school and I sort of didn't want to be there. I wasn't interested in it. Um, like, I lost contact with friends because I I sort of became a bit weird or I thought that I was becoming a bit weird, where in reality I was actually just not happy with myself and the reason was I, I just didn't have an identity, I think. And it wasn't until my mum said, look, we think, you, we think you need to go and chat to someone. And at the time, like, I was petrified. I didn't, I didn't think I needed to go and speak with someone and, you know, casting my mind back 20 years or whatever it may be, like, you know, that was, there was still a real stigma attached to that. And I remember going to that first appointment with the psychologist and I, I was so scared, but I came away thinking, look, that was great. Like I, like, I feel like he's a mate. And I then built this confidence with the guy that I was going and chatting with and it really just helped. And I, from, an, from very early on, I was never sort of ashamed to, to, to having to go and speak with this guy because I knew that chatting with him was actually helping me. And that was, I guess, how we worked out it was depression. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that in some ways the solution, for want of a better word, was there all along. That The bike riding was there for you and your dad was a, an amazing role model in many ways, kind of already doing these crazy adventures. But I wonder if in a way the fact that he was already doing that was perhaps why you didn't immediately pursue that as an avenue you know everyone everyone wants to sort of push yeah. not necessarily copy what their parents are doing and you know yeah looking, looking back you just think well what, what a cool dad to to been going off and riding around the world yeah super cool and like what you say is 100 correct because i remember when i was young and i'd go for a ride with my dad like he wasn't wearing the trendiest gear he wasn't you know on the latest bike and i remember one time saying you're going to go and ride down that street and i'm going to ride on the street parallel <laughs> because like i just don't want to ride next to you and I look back and I'm 
I feel like an idiot. I feel ashamed to have ever thought that. And nowadays, like I love the idea of riding with my dad. Like I miss him not being here and being able to ride with him. I think that's what that's actually one of the things around um around cycling is it can be quite cliquey in that respect like you turn up yeah. to a, a like a Saturday riding group and you know if you've not been there before they're looking you up and down you know what socks are you wearing what gear are you yeah. wearing you know what and uh and to be honest it, it matters not what matters is what you're like in pedaling up those hills and what you can uh and you, how how much you stick your nose in the front and how long you do it for right is uh is what really exactly. matters yeah yeah um but i'm interested like in the the addiction piece right so it strikes me that and you you obviously sort of like it wasn't just addicted to alcohol you were sort of the whole gamut of uh um of sort of uh, of drugs as well and and it's a like slippery slope right once you get into yeah. that into that circle and um but endurance sports it can and it, it is an addiction right i think for anyone yeah. that like you uh, and like you've been injured for like the last couple of years and it's just like really frustrating not to be able to do it you kind of need to do it to feel normal and um and I suppose it sort of has it become that for you it's almost like it's your addiction now it's your crux for sure like I I get endorphins when I go and ride and like now for example I'm having four or five weeks off the bike and like it's taken me a long time to get to the point where I'm I can accept that I'm not going to ride a bike because it's 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 sort of more from my hobby into my job into my identity and it it's sort of that's who I am and to not be able to do that becomes very difficult and it's definitely taken some time to to overcome those sort of post event blues or those you know yeah. when you're injured and you're not able to ride like who are you, what are you, and what do you do on a daily basis if you can't do what really fulfills you and what really makes you happy? Especially if you've also put yourself out there as this is this is what I do and this is such an integral part of who I am. And, of course, I mean, the, the secret is no one cares. They care, as, as Scott says, they care about you. you know, no, yeah. one, no one really cares whether you're going to go and ride up that mountain that morning, but it yeah. matters to you. And, and, and like you said, just your whole identity starts to kind of be chipped away at and, and fall to pieces, yeah. How have you been handling it the last month then? What have you been doing? Well, it was good actually because I went to Australia. So I popped back home. It's been three years since I've been back there. We finished the the sort of million metres off back in Perth. And that was great just seeing faces that I haven't seen for so long and actually completing the final metres on a small climb that I used to ride, you know, back early days where it all started. But basically since then I've, I've been at the beach, I've been surfing again. Um, that's been a hobby that I've missed, you know, living living where I live now. I haven't been able to surf as much as I'd like to, catching up with friends, you know, going for a walk with mum and dad. I felt like what I made a real conscious effort of doing this year was making a list of all the things I missed when I was right in the thick of the riding. And for me that becomes really valuable when I finish the ride or I finish any event for that matter that I have that list of things that, you know, I can look back on and say, look, I was missing having two days off in a row and now I've got that. So I need to enjoy it. And I call it that list of lusts. It's the things that I missed during the year that I can then indulge in when, when the year's over. And basically the last four weeks has just been indulging in all the things that I missed. The list of lust. I, I like that. I mean, I think often when you're in training, you're like, I, I always, if I'm going for a long run, I'm looking forward to a certain food or something after. And then yeah. uh, and then you need to remember what, actually when you're eating that to savour it and enjoy it. Because all that time that you were thinking about it whilst you're in the pain cave doing that training. As you were, and so, yeah, it's important to really sort of savour it and enjoy it, right? 
for sure. And I think we get caught up in like trying to achieve a goal and then we achieve it and we're like, we feel lost that it's like, there's more than just the goal. There's all the things that, you know, there's more to it than just the, you know, achieving what you set out to achieve. I mean, that that big ride across Europe. Um, what is the, the race? What's the race across the, the transcontinental? Transcontinental. I, I knew someone that did it recently. It's like five thousand, three thousand miles, or four thousand miles. Is it five thousand kilometers? Yeah. So basically, there's not a set route. So you start yeah. and you finish in a given point, and then there's checkpoints along the way, Got and you. you can go to those checkpoints however which way you want to get there. So it works out roughly, and I forget the calculation in miles, but I think when I did it, it was around four four thousand kilometers. Okay. Um. So it's a beast, and it, yeah, yeah. And did I you have like did you have anymore. someone support you, or you just had like a kind of pannier rack bag or something on on your bike when you were doing it? Just the bags on the bike, so it's yeah. like completely unsupported. Yeah, they're very much keen on keeping it that way they don't sure. want any interference they try to keep it as I guess, natural as they can and how um, did you do in that first event how did you perform so many learnings huh like i was a proper cowboy going into that i had no idea what i was doing i had no idea about equipment and what was good and what wasn't like it was bloody hard and i caught the stomach bug midway through which made it even harder it was just a massive 10 or 11 days of learning but like I think that ignited the spark because I could see the potential of you know what I could learn what I could get out of it and um I think that as I say it sparked that sort of ignition to to want more yeah yeah we uh Rick we watched the uh the the king of the the KOM the Taiwan's like a Taiwan's like a beautiful island to ride it I've never actually ridden yeah. there but it's been on our like during yeah. pandemic we're like we've got to get up got to get I want to like mountain bike through the center there's an amazing trail through the center but um uh yeah there's yeah. that great great documentary we'll link to it in the show notes about that about that challenge but the KOM challenge it's what is it the hard the steepest longest climb in Taiwan one of the longest continuous climbs in the world so it's around 83 kilometers uphill start at sea level climb up to 3,400 meters and you're just climbing through the gorges and through the jungle and like the landscape changes and like for anyone in the Asia region that's that's an event or a climb I'd I'd say you have to go and do it before you die because it's honestly still one of the best climbs best places I've ever ridden yeah, it's a quality, quality video though. Really well done. Like, did you have your own like videographer and everything that you've been working with? On the, I know you mentioned that was the first one that gained traction, but yeah, it's really well produced, really well done. Nah, thanks. We I had a, a mate who's actually a videographer back in Perth. And I said to him, Look, you came to come and give this a shot. Maybe it'll be a success, maybe it'll be a flop. And he came and he put, you know, 110% into it. And I think, yeah, I'm I was stoked with the outcome. I couldn't believe it yeah killed it no it's really um it's really good and so you, you ended up doing it f- three times and then you actually raced with everyone else on the fourth so you were like getting sort of legendary station at status at the start line everyone's <laughs> like you mad man just having done it three times wow. and we're going to do it first time but no it's it's really cool and then the actual race part of it and how that plays out it's a yeah it's a it's a very very cool watch but um uh yeah and and then like going on from there jack like talk us through some of these other challenges and and also interested in just like how you how you built up like were you 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 clearly felt like you had an aptitude for the longer stuff the the heavy endurance stuff but were you 
I mean, were you looking to push your limits in these things? What were you, how were you picking these challenges? Yeah, so I guess first things, like for me, the creative, one of the things that I enjoy is that the creative side of coming up with a challenge, coming up with an event, working out, you know, logistically how it's going to work, working out how that's going to work for a sponsor and how, you know, it's going to be beneficial for them. And that's become more of the sort of work side of it. But like to begin with, it was just like, where's a cool place I can go and ride and let's go do something cool there. And like Taiwan was the first example of that. After Taiwan, I went the following year and did three Everests in three countries in three days. And we call that the Grand Tours Everesting Project. So we went to Italy, France and Spain. And we basically picked the highest peaks in each of those countries. And my goal was to try and Everest all three, drive in between them and make it all happen within three days. So that was a lot of fun. And that was a uh, that was probably at the time the hardest I had to push myself. Again, I was a cowboy. I didn't know what I was doing, but I, I just knew that like I loved, I loved doing it and I loved the you know, the planning that goes into it and the, the sense of achievement when you finish it, but also like the teamwork and the camaraderie around having, you know, a photographer, a filmmaker. And at the time it was my dad that would come and join me. From there, I actually came to Girona where I'm based now. And I thought, you know, I'm going to show the film we shot the year prior in Taiwan. And I actually realized that there was a lot of opportunity to connect with different brands and different people. And I made the decision basically on the spot that I was going to move to Girona because uh, that's just where I had to be to, to sort of make this um, dream of being a professional ultracyclist a reality. So I moved here and I got we got struck down with COVID and, you know, everyone's heard enough about COVID. But basically I was in Spain and I had to do an event in Spain just because of the restrictions. And I thought maybe I'll try and set the record for the most kilometres in a, in, a, um, in a week. And I picked the flattest part of Spain, again, went down there with a team, documented it and managed to break the world record for the most kilometers in a week what, what was which, the which yeah three and a half thousand kilometers um yeah from there like yeah i've done the tour de france in 10 days um i've ridden the north of the south of portugal and broken the record there and then most recently this million meter project and like I feel tired thinking about the whole lot <laughs> we're, now. We're going to get into that. that. I mean, it, just yeah. interestingly, though, like, did you have you had any setbacks along the way? Like, have you had any injuries you had to deal with, or have you have, at any point have you thought, "Hang on a minute, I've bitten off a bit more than I can chew here." I've definitely had moments where I'm like, "Wow, like maybe I've bitten off a bit more than I can chew." The Tour de France project was a bit like that. It was a logistical bloody nightmare. Because what is that? It's like 50,000 50, metres of climbing or something? Yeah, around 50,000 metres of climbing, uh, 3,000 metres of, no, I think it was 3,400 or 3,500 uh, kilometres. Did you pick an actual specific course that they did one year, like all the same sections? So like you drove between each? Uh... Yeah. So basically last year we took the exact Tour de France course Wherever they rode, I would ride, and wherever they transferred, I would transfer. Was and it we like a week, a week later or something? Or So I gave them a 10-day head start, right? and then my goal was to beat them to Paris. <laughs> so we, we beat them. We, we, we passed them in Andorra on the rest day with two days to go, and I just sort of skirted past them, got to Paris before them. 
<laughs> that is madness. I've done the Hort route before from Nice from Nice to Geneva, which is basically like yeah. seven days. It's like a third of the Tour de France, and um, and and obviously like not anywhere near the level of distances every day. But my God, so what? So so you and you did it in ten days. You're doing 350 meters a day with like an average of yeah, like um, ten thousand meters a day. No, no, five so five thousand meters a day. Yeah, basically 350 kilometer average with around 5,000 a day. And I think the biggest day was like 380 kilometers. A double Queen meters. That's... It was fucking hard. And, and so, but were you obviously, you're not doing it Tour de France pace, but like you're, um, but so what was the longest like day in the bike then for that 380? So basically, two, so I'd do two stages a day. So it basically worked out that the longest day was 380-odd kilometres and almost 8,000 metres of climbing. So, And, and yeah, like, what, how, what was the time in the saddle for that? I forget. It would have been around probably 18 hours. Man. But the difficult thing that, like, it's hard to sort of um, explain or put into words is the riding part was one part. The difficult part was actually the transfers in between because it's just lost time in a day. So, you you know, you do 200 kilometres for a long stage and then you've got to get in the car and drive for four hours. Then you've got to get out and ride again. It's not as if you're in one of the big Tour de de France buses (laughs) where you've got like a whole bed and stuff in there. Did you did you at least were you able to sleep on the transfers? I was. Yeah, I did quite well. Like I could sleep on the transfers. But then again, there was three of us in the van like. It was an adventure, a proper adventure. <laughs> it was is, like, emotions uh, running high and low, and like. Uh, do, you, do you still do you still drink, or you're like, oh, you don't don't drink or anything at all? Or like, I, I don't say, drink anymore. No, I was going to say like I'd love to have been in the pub when you came up with that decision, or or in the coffee shop when you were like, yeah, ideating around around yeah. that one. That's mental. And someone going, there's no bloody way you could do that what you're talking about and like <laughs> and as soon as someone's like that i bet for you it's like red rag to a ball tell Let's me go. i can't do it and i'll prove you wrong <laughs> what exactly. when was the first everest thing you did jack the first one i did was it would have been 2019 so i did the three everest in the three days and leading up to that as part of the training i did okay. one everest or two everest in in perth where i'm from in australia yeah got you so i mean because everything's kind of been around like we've had andy Van and the guy that came up with it it's it's been around for like quite a few since like 2015 or so so you, kind of for you to yeah. actually do your first one so historically you've never like been focused on doing a lot of climbing i mean on, on the sort of long tour stuff you already always take on a few hills here and there but have you always Tom? like enjoyed it in because normally you're either like a crit rider or you're like or or you're like built for the hills like what what would you what would be your specialism as if if you had have gone down the professional route earlier on to be honest like i'm i'm a bigger guy like i weigh 83 or 84 kilos but i've always yeah. really enjoyed climbing and i don't know if that's because like again it's like a little goal you've got to get to the top of that climb and then you can enjoy the downhill and i like i like having that sort of focus and while I've not been like the best climber in the world and I'm nowhere near the lightest climber in the world or the fastest, I've still really enjoyed climbing. And for me, that's why like a lot of like this last year has been all about the climbing. And while I want to take a break from the climbing, like I still love it, you know, like 
I love getting out and going up the hill. I think it's a challenge. Yeah, I mean, so so climbing, you, the challenges you've done before, obviously you've done the climbing at, at the KOM in Taiwan, but then you've done, you've done the distance record uh, in Spain. You've done, I guess, a time record on the Tour de France and crossing the, 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 the what is it, north to south in Portugal. Yeah. So the, the, the kind of big elevation, the big vert challenge was the one bit missing from your from your resume. So is that, did that feed into the thinking around last year's challenge? Yeah, it did actually. And like to begin with, I wanted to do, so I was in Portugal at the time I came up with the concept and the original plan was I'm going to try and Everest in every municipality of Portugal. So there was 26 municipalities and I thought I'm going to try and tie this in with tourism. I'm going to try and promote Portugal as a cycling destination by actually going and climbing in every single municipality and the, the funding for that fell through and I was sort of left with a yeah an empty year in front of me and I thought well I, I still want to do these Everest things so how can I make a project out of it and so I had that inkling that I wanted to do a climbing year or a climbing challenge and from there it just sort of grew with with me doing some bad maths and some bad rounding and coming up with a stupid idea and have you have you any idea what the what the I mean I'm assuming that climbing a million meters in a year is is a new record and and probably a record for a very long time to come but have you any idea what what was the furthest or highest anyone had climbed prior to that? Look, to be honest, I'm not sure if it's a record. Some people have told me that it's not, that someone's climbed further. And I don't know if that's a combination of indoor riding and outdoor riding. Um, I can't find any sort of hard evidence on that. So I, I don't want to say that that's a record. I know that Everesting's in a year's definitely a record. So we got that confirmed yesterday. Um, I think to put it into perspective, I think Richie Port had his biggest climbing year ever in 2021, and that was around 600,000 metres of vert. Um, so that sort of helps to put it into yeah. perspective. Um, a million metres is harder. <laughs> it's a long <laughs> bloody way up. Yeah, I mean, just that, just that consistency and the relentlessness. But so, so for the Everestings, the fifty-two Everestings, did you did you follow full Everesting rules for all of them? Yeah, so I'm now in the process of logging them all onto the Everesting website and getting them all approved. But yeah, I basically did it all properly. Did it all. They were all outdoors. They were all on a different climb. They were all, you know, you did them all. The fifty-two different hills. Yeah. So that was like my mini goal within the goal that I wanted to do them all on a different hill. And you did quite a few different countries as well, right? Yeah. So I've done Spain, um, France, the UK, uh, the US. Uh, done them in Tenerife, which is off the coast of Africa. Um, yeah. I mean, the difficult thing was the, go, the relentless. You can't go too far when you need, when you need to get climbing the next yeah. day. Yeah. That was the I'm hardest looking, thing. Like you just have to be on it. I'm looking at the last Everest thing you did, and it was in Port uh, Port Vendres in France. Is that how you say it, Port Vendres? Or um, and nine thousand meters elevation gain, but only 153k distance. Like that is yeah. a crazy. Like that that must be about like 13 percent average, or yeah. or more even. I, think so when, when, I, I, I worked out that for me, the best climbs were the steepest I could find. Interesting. So I was basically hunting for 10 or 11% plus. So I think for my body shape and the way that I ride, like I, I like the explosive having to get out of the saddle and, and sort of 
yeah, right. muscle my way up them. Yeah. And I also, like, I was conscious that the shorter the climb or the steeper the climb and the less number of kilometres, the less time. Yeah. And this year, last year was all about, like, maximising my time so that I could spend time with my partner, you know, do normal things. And, yeah, I just decided I wanted to get them done as quick as I could. Yeah, I mean, that one took 10 hours. Um, but, wow, that's, like... Yeah, that's very steep. That's um, yeah. did you, so I'm sure like from logistically, you didn't make it easy for yourself. You could have just done the same hill once a week and just got it done. But so you're traveling all around the time as well. What what were you doing for like rest and recovery? Now, I know when you're going through this ultra endurance stuff, your body just gets used to it, doesn't it? It just goes, OK, yeah. here we go again. What are you doing to me, Jack? All right. OK, I'm I'm up for I'm not really up for it, but I'm, I know what you're going to make me do again. But you do need to, you know, from a fueling, from sleep, from like massage, from, um, yeah, just how, how did you make sure the body wasn't falling falling to pieces? Yeah, it's a good question. So 2022, I was living like an absolute monk. Like I, I didn't really do anything except ride my bike. I was super focused on my eating. I was super focused on my stretching. So I did around 150 hours of stretching we worked out. Okay. Um, as far as nutrition goes, I was absolutely on that. So I've, I ate around two and a half thousand gels and bars throughout the year. So like just staying on top of being I hope fueled. you were sponsored with by the company went having yeah. to pay for all those gels and bars. What, I was what sponsored gels? by gels and bars, but not brake pads. And I went through 48 <laughs> sets of brake pads. How many, how many pairs of wheels did you go through as well? Like if you're going through brake pads, you're tearing the wheels up as well. Because I'm on discs, I actually, I only used, uh, well, alternated yeah. between bikes, but two two bikes, so two sets of wheels. And okay. honestly, no mechanicals all year. Two, two punches in the whole year. Wow. 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 That's fucking lucky. Um, yeah. so what what were the gels? What were the gel of choice? Because obviously you want to make sure you get goo. sponsored by one you like. Okay, goo. Okay. Because, yeah, <laughs> the goo you only have to get sponsored by one that you like. It makes you want to gag every time you have it. That's not going to be. But you learn to love yeah. goos. I've learned to love goo and just the flavor range is massive. So like I couldn't work with, with a brand like, you know, someone like a Morton that's just one flavor. I would struggle with just yeah. eating that same flavor for a whole year. But yeah, with goo, it's been great because I've, I've got birthday cake gels. I've got strawberry pineapple. I've got vanilla. I've got dark chocolate. It's like digging into the back pocket for a treat. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of carbohydrate as well, though. And I'm sure like the pace wise you're doing you're kind of in fat burning zone for most of it as well so like what but you know you need to get you need to get the fuel in and there's like the the most amount of energy you can get in that's in that size right yeah. so you can't yeah but what um what were you fueling with when you're off the bike what kind of diet were you having so this is interesting so i was using super i've been using super sapiens for a couple of years which allows me to monitor my blood glucose basically live whenever i want whenever i need to sort of look at it so you're also like patch. a constant glucose monitor that you've got like yeah on you. okay so it's like as a diabetic would wear it sits on my yeah. arm it feeds directly to my phone wirelessly when i'm on the bike on the on the bike computer as well and it tells me what my blood glucose is and just having used that for a couple of years i worked out I basically built a strategy around what I need to eat on the bike and what I need to eat off it. So when I'm on the bike, I typically eat every half an hour, uh, either a bar or a gel, and I try to get around 
100 to 130 grams of carbohydrate in every single hour. Okay. Um, up until last year, science was saying you could only basically consume or your body could only digest around 90 grams an hour. Yeah. yeah. We've since seen that we can, we can use way more. So I've been using 100 to 130 grams an hour. And that, was all, that was all in bars and gels where you weren't drinking any of your, your fuel? No, so a lot of it comes from drink as well. So um, every hour, basically, I'd have two gels and a whole, uh, basically, a litre of uh, water with sugar in it. Yeah. Uh, and, so it's sugar overload. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot. I don't know how, like, I, I do a lot more, like, ultra running and getting into those second day of and then just drink it like i use tailwind and it just gets sickly yeah. after a while you can't um what what were you using like to drink what to drink your fuel is it same goo has a, same has a goo, yeah yeah so they've got a drink mix they've got a couple of flavors and it's got amino acids and um yeah. you can get yeah lots of different sort of mixtures and electrolytes and stuff right yeah, yeah. The and, thing, and then when you're off the bike yeah. what what were you yeah what was your kind of then were you eating healthy when you're off the diet off the bike because you can't really call gels like healthy (laughs) can you it's not like uh it's not like the i mean yeah what i worked out is that if i fueled really well directly before i went for a ride and directly after i went for a ride so rich in carbohydrate um lots of fats uh protein specifically after i ride then the rest of the day, I ate pretty normal. So for dinner, I wouldn't have a lot of carbohydrate. Um, in the afternoon, I would eat, but I wouldn't be going crazy on carbohydrate. What I found is that if I periodized my carbohydrate intake around the bike, my body became more effective at burning the carbohydrate. But as soon as I started introducing carbohydrate all throughout the day, it's like my body became slack it, it knew that it was getting the carbohydrate and it sort of didn't use it as efficiently so i would essentially fuel up big beforehand fuel up big on the bike fuel up big afterwards and then i'd drop the carbohydrate right off so that the body was then craving the carbohydrate the following morning when i got back on the bike and that worked really well yeah interesting and uh, and yeah you mentioned like doing a lot of stretching like 150 hours or so of stretching over the uh um and um what about like massage and stuff? Was your was your better? Were you getting your better half to be your masseuse for you as well, or did you actually have? Did you go to a masseuse a lot? Yeah, yeah. I don't use massage. You don't. So I, didn't, Interesting. I didn't have yeah. massage all year. Wow, not even like a theragun or anything like that. You had no other Nothing. stuff like. Okay, interesting. Yeah, and there yeah, were no injuries I'd... over the course uh, over the course of the whole year. No injuries, nah. So for me, I find the stretching is what. I've got some problem areas like around my hips. I need to keep an eye to make sure that I've got the mobility in the hips, lower back, and then just like the bottom chain, so the quads and hamstrings. But if I stay on top of that daily, then I don't touch wood. I don't seem to get niggles. And I'm, I'm interested in those kind of, I mean, they're not off days, are they? They're anything but off days, but the the, the 2,000 plus meter days. So, I mean, it's obviously easy to focus on the Everest thing, but then, what was your routine for those those other five days a week, Jack? Like, were you were you going out for a ride at the same time? Were you were you just cruising around, or were you trying to get that done as quickly as you could? So yeah, I was trying to get it done as quickly as I could. So if we looked at a typical week, a Monday was typically three thousand meters of elevation. Tuesday three and a half thousand meters. Wednesday three thousand meters. Thursday I had an easy day before the Everest, so I did fifteen hundred meters. 
Everest on Friday and then 1,000 metres Saturday and the day off Sunday. But basically, every day I'd go on the bike, it was uh, choosing a hill and doing hill repeats on it just because I wanted to get it done as quickly as I could. So I had basically five different climbs scattered around Girona that I, I, I chose as my playground. As, I don't know if it's a playground, but they were the climbs the that chamber. I would go and do. Yeah. <laughs> the number Each of local week. legends you must have yeah. on Strava <laughs> all around your area is incredible, yeah. So, yeah, and I'd just go and do, you know, six repeats on one I knew would give me 3,000 metres, four on another would give me 3,500, 30 on another would give me 2,000. And how, how do you, like, avoid the monotony of it all? Because, like, it can just and, – and also just because you can zone out when you're doing those kind of Everest and, like, and have accidents and have crashes as well, right? Yeah. But, so but how did you, like, avoid the monotony but also maintain alertness? Because I'm sure there was times when you were doing Everesting where you were like, oh, I'm feeling a little bit woozy, a bit sleepy. Yeah. So the, the monotony is an interesting one. I found that by breaking up the climb, so I knew every day I had a different climb for a week. By the time that new week rolled around, not that I was ready to get back on the same climb, but I could deal with the fact that I was on the same climb because I was only doing it once a week. Yeah. And I then used music to, to sort of keep me awake. So I generally won't listen to music until I'm at least halfway through a ride. And that's a bit of a reward for me. The first half, I sort of battle it out. And I know that then I've got music for the second half. And as soon as I put the music in, like I'm fine. Like I know that I can deal with, with whatever. You're, you're at halfway. It's almost, it's all downhill from here. Well, it's quite literally exactly. downhill, but like you, you're <laughs> over the crux of it, aren't you? Yeah, exactly. So then yeah, I'd, I'd put the music in and like, I've got some great playlists. I listen to a lot of house music and I just sort of drift into the music and like, I've, I've got some mixes and I can send them to you guys and you can perhaps link them below that. Like I literally, I fall into the music and I'm literally like stuck in the music storyline. And like, for me, that's the best thing in the world. It's like a meditation and like, I'm just off in the music and time just disappears. Yeah. And that that's key for me for some of these long rides is just having a good music playlist that, you know, I can just disappear into. And then, and then just in terms of breaking down the year, Jack, how, how far were you looking ahead or were you trying not to look ahead? Were you just kind of focusing on the week in front of you? Pretty much, yeah. So I looked at it week by week. As soon as I started looking at it as a million metres or I've still got you know, 300,000 to go, I found that became quite daunting. But if I knew that I just had 20,000 metres to get through and then I could have a day off, that sort of gave me a, a goal or an end point every single week and it gave me that sense of being able to tick something off. So, yeah, to answer the question, I tried only to look a week ahead. Yeah. And at what, what stage in the year did you start to notice that it was picking up a bit of attention and, and buzz? To be honest, not until maybe like a month ago. Like, yeah. I think the difficult thing with last year was that it was so monotonous that anyone that was following probably got a bit bored of it as well. And I, I learned from that because I'm like, I'd never do a year long thing again because it's hard to keep it interesting. Yeah. And like there were times where I thought, oh, like I thought I'd get more media around it than what I did, but then I have to remind myself, look, you were just climbing hills all year, mate. Like it's not that interesting. And we've actually got a film now that's put together and ready to go, and we're we're trying to get a media partner on board for that. And I hope that by putting that film out, which basically documents the whole year, the highs, the lows, everything in between, 
that then it picks up and we get a bit of media attention. Um, but it's been hard, hey. I, I think it's also the fact that it's just such a fucking big challenge that mm. a, a lot of people just can't like quite relate to. I think the fact that you break it down into Everest things, I think people are like, I, I've done like an everything on a bike before and I was broken for a, like three weeks after. I can't imagine like that every single week is just in, incredible. But the I think it, almost when it's too big, it's hard for people to really kind of understand how you would actually do it and have like, um, yeah. and I think, uh, but yeah, getting that message across, I'm really interested to see the, see the film as well and how you can kind of like, kind of portray that. Because I think a lot of time when you're coming up with these challenges, like, what's going to capture people's imagination what is it that's a, yeah. and you know the million miles is uh but it, I, I don't know I just think it's quite hard for people really that aren't a, like an, an avid cyclist or like for your general public for your general punter to really be able yeah. to understand how that's even possible and to be honest that was one of the reasons that we went with the space style branding yeah was that we thought you know how do we put this into perspective like you can say like if you said you know as an example, like 10 metres, when you say 10 metres, I automatically think of a diving board at the, at the local pool, like, wow, that's a long way up. But a million metres, there's nothing to quantify it. So we thought, look, let's have a play with it. And, you know, basically a million metres is two and a half times the height of the International Space Station. So let's go with some you know, NASA-esque branding. And let's also try and engage with Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, and see if we can get them behind it to help with the fundraising we failed at that part of it, <laughs> but I think the space branding is still pretty cool. I think that's right, though, isn't it? It's about relatability. Like we were talking before about Ned Brockman running across Australia, and that's something that people can easily kind of get their head around the coast to coast, a bit like your north to south in Portugal. You don't, yeah. you don't have to know anything about the athletic achievement to understand the And if the, you've the ever there. flown from, from Sydney to Perth, you realise yeah. how many fucking miles of nothingness that you uh, that you pass. So I think, uh, exactly. yeah um but i made the fundraising absolutely incredible job and like as someone that's done like fundraising before there's so much pressure on it as well especially when you set a really specific goal that you want to want to achieve and um and uh but yeah incredible so like what what was the what and we we all we i haven't donated yet but i'll uh, i'll add to it as well yeah, but what what did you get up to um what are you up to at this moment in time so it's just over four hundred thousand aussie dollars um, we're going to keep it open until after the film goes live because, you know, if a media outlet picks it up, then hopefully we can get some more to come in. Um, I mean, it's only been three weeks since you finished, right? So, like, uh, yeah, yeah. definitely it needs to be kept open, yeah. And hopefully like, open, people listen to more. Yeah. And yeah. for the charities, how did you choose the charities, Jack? So they were all mental health charities. I basically decided I wanted a charity to try and pick a charity that, you know, charities that would represent the world or the continents as a whole. So I picked one down in Australia, Kids Helpline. I picked one in Africa, Strong Minds, and I picked one in the US, which was linked with bikes, um, outrides, so getting kids on bikes and the benefit of bikes on their mental health. Um, and then I've also just, as part of being back in Perth, supported a charity, um, Youth Focus, which is, yeah, again, um, removing the stigma attached with mental health um, in you know, teens and adolescents. So great charities doing great things and yeah hopefully we can make more of a difference yeah well done mate Amazing. well done it kind of it kind of begs the question then uh <laughs> what next <laughs> mate what next i'm sure like first of jan you are like uh 
you're I, I know how people like you's mind works it's like you you want to just be able to rest and enjoy but the mind's ticking away and yeah. like and the, and the body's aching and but it's also saying it's aching to to put itself yeah. through some more pain so i've got things planned for this year so i've i'll i'll still take off until the first of feb and then i'll start riding again yeah. but we've basically got three um athletic sort of projects that i'm working on so i want to break the japan tokyo to osaka record um i'm going to go to unbound and do the unbound excel on the us the gravel event yeah. and then i'm going to try and break the record for there's a trail down in australia called the mundabiti and it's a thousand kilometers basically a single track trail that connects perth and albany so i want to go and give that a stab and then on top of that we're working on three film projects that um, a little bit more philanthropic, so a climate change project um, in Alaska, a deforestation project in the Amazon, and a hunger project in India. So basically using the bike to tell those three stories and try and engage with more than just the cycling world. I'm really keen to engage with the non-cycling world and, and you know, basically create bigger stories for, for more good. So that's the reasoning behind 2023. And then 2024, I'm going to... Is a big one. I want to try and break the around the world record. Really? So, okay. Yeah. Like, um, I mean, I've followed that challenge a few times with the the Scotsman Mark. Uh, what's his name? Mark Beaumont. Mark Beaumont. Yeah, yeah. And I've like seen a couple of his documentaries about it. Does he, does he hold the record still? It must have been taken. Yeah, he's got it. He still holds so, it. I believe he said it, and then somebody broke it, and then a couple of years ago he said it again. So it's, yeah. it's pretty. Um, it's a great record. Seventy eight days um 380 kilometers average a day like it's it's big numbers so there's a lot of planning that needs to go into that yeah, one the, but the logistics yeah. of that see i mean you talk about the logistic on the tour de france one but that's 10 days like uh yeah yeah but that's so, quite nice chat right because that kind of brings you full circle because you, didn't your dad do something similar not not for a speed record but just over over a number of years exactly he did the around the world as a as a retirement project and so it'd be cool to be able to get, he's got a little tattoo on his arm of like a little globe and a man on the top of the globe. So if I can get around the world, then I might have to, to copy him. You'll get that one too. <laughs> Mate, that's brilliant. I love the um, the idea of the Mundabidi one as well. So that's like a, a trail, that's mountain biking, will it? Or like gravel bike? Yeah. So that's like, it's where I grew up. It's that whole region. Um, it's it's a region that um, has a lot of Aboriginal culture. And like, like as part of that story, like I wanted to tell, um, you know, their story as well and just engage with the Indigenous people of Australia. And, yeah, I, like I'm, I want to do more than just ride a bike. I want to tell stories and engage people. And I think moving forward, like a lot of the projects will have that sort of second focus to them. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the bike's the perfect sort of vehicle, but I guess like literally and metaphorically for telling those stories, isn't it? It's, it's yeah, a great way to bring awareness to those issues. And it's just so yeah. accessible to everyone as well, right? I think, uh, yeah. That's the, it. The, and that's one of, you know, COVID, like, not that we get to go into it, but it got a lot of people buying bikes, obviously, like, and, uh, and but a lot of people have them gathering dust in their shed or something at the moment. So, yeah. like, to be able to inspire more people to get out on them and uh, and to use them and to explore with them is, uh, and, uh, mate, 
incredible stuff incredible stuff i can't wait to to see all these uh these other challenges happening happening this year but um how how much are you itching to get on the back bike right now or are you like are you looking at it stored in the other side of the room you're like no you've got another 10 days of uh off of you yet <laughs> i'm starting to miss it a little bit like i don't I don't miss it enough yet to get back on it, but I am starting to get that inkling that I want to throw the leg over and do a few pedal strokes. <laughs> have you have you found any other kind of a- athletic activity or sport can can replicate that feeling you get from a long ride? Like, would you not go for a run same. if you're not riding? Or I don't run. Like, I've I've really reignited the passion of surfing, being yeah. back in Australia, and like I'm now doing like killing hours each day trying to look at where I can go for a surf somewhere close to Spain and looking at equipment and things that, yeah, probably a silly decision. But for me that, like, I'd love to have that hobby outside of cycling. And I think if I can go and surf and disconnect, then that's also really healthy. And so, yeah, like, I think it'll provide me like a different outlet. Um, But for me, like, yeah, like I haven't found anything for me that works the same as cycling. Yeah, I think funnily enough, I think surfing and cycling are not not dissimilar in that respect. Like I was surfing last summer, and I remember thinking it's quite a meditative thing. Yeah, it's, sort of, it's not dissimilar to kind of that, like the long hours on the bike, because you really you really are in the moment in a way that very few yeah. other activities force you to be. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's um, and you sort of like you know in nature and every wave is different. Just like yeah. you know, every time you go for a ride, it's different and. Yeah, it's like that meditation, which is pretty special. Yeah, is it different when you're doing the same bloody hill <laughs> week in, week out? It's not that much different. <laughs> I've erased that from my memory no more. <laughs> well, I mean, just out of interest, I mean, I guess we just talked about, you know, the, the rest of the world and how they might struggle to relate to a challenge like that. But, you know, Girona's the sort of cycling capital of, of Europe, if not the world. But what, what do the other riders that you know there and, and see out on the road, what do they think about it all? Oh, I think they think it's stupider. Like I've got some good mates, obviously, that live here. And at the beginning of the year, there was like quite a lot of interest. Like, yeah, yeah we'll go for a ride. And <laughs> as the year sort of came to a close, there was less people coming on these rides with me. And like, I don't blame them. I would have been the same. But uh, yeah, I've got some mates that are also racing World Tour. And yeah, I think we both have like a real respect for one another. I have a lot of respect for what they do. And I think having completed this year they also have the the same respect for what i'm doing so it's it's like it's nice yeah it's, yeah well, mate, we, we massive respect from, from this side of the world huge yeah and it's kind yeah. of a different discipline as well isn't it this kind of ultra cycling compared to doing doing like the the tours which are like i mean probably the the, the speed they go and the intensity over yeah. those three weeks are just a completely next level but there yeah. is um but it's just different sport basically That's and it. It's like and, and i bet you a lot of them could probably they couldn't do what you're doing they just but they, they yeah um, yeah so it's just um yeah you're you're attuned to it very differently yeah i think it's like yeah like you, in the running world you've got your ultra marathon runner and then you've got your same bolt and it's yeah. they're both runners but they're yeah. completely different beasts yeah 100 percent. yeah yeah well jack it's been an absolute pleasure mate thank you so much for coming and joining us we'll be following really look forward to seeing the uh seeing the movie come out as well seeing the documentary come out and- yeah we'll link to all of that in the show notes and uh and start spreading the word over here yeah and hopefully no, be great. Um, see you out in asia for a couple of challenges as well or at least for the part of the round the world bit in 2024 yeah i'd love to get back down to asia and you know i'm 
really keen to come and explore and if we can set up some challenges down there then i'm all for it yeah there's a burgeoning cycling community here for sure so yeah i'd love to see you here but yeah jack really appreciate it thanks for joining thank you mate thanks guys tell the truthful story if they ever ask stop the complaining because things ain't that bad scott how you doing mate i'm very well very well what a legend uh jack is what what jack thompson what a crazy crazy guy yeah, I mean, you think like, we you know, we had you talking about your Everesting attempts. We've had people on because, you know, an Everesting is, you know, the culmination of a lot of people's training. It's a goal that, you know, they think is, you know, beyond their reach initially. And then here's this guy knocking them out every single weekend for a full year. Yeah, I, I just love his creativity and the way he sort of thinks about pushing the boundaries. And, and you know, it's a, it's a, if you're going to especially do it to... Yeah, raise funding but also raise uh, raise money for charity it needs to be something that people can relate to yeah. or, or excites people you know just get raising funding for any normal race is just not enough is it and i think he's done he's got such a sort of a creative approach to endurance feats yeah i think that idea of coming up with a challenge that people can get behind and tying it into causes that you care about and raising awareness like i mean he's admitted himself it's a lot to juggle at the same time you know let alone the physical feat that you're undertaking but yeah no kudos to him it was an amazing year he's had yeah and i mean so he got the record number of uh everestings in one year that was a clear record the actually i think he said that it wasn't necessarily a record number of like uh, of elevation in a year but it would be it it's got to be up there isn't it definitely be up there and yeah, I'm just excited to see what what he does next. And he's got a he's got there's a a documentary that's going to be published soon as well around around last year and uh, and his um yeah his uh, million meters of, of elevation and yeah, yeah he's a he's he's a, he's a good follow on um on YouTube in particular actually just worth checking him out there because he posts quite a lot of videos around training and there's some good stuff he's put up recently about you know the gym being his secret weapon and doing a lot of leg and strength work in the gym being more important almost than just hours on the bike i mean i was you know i was quite impressed when we talked to him and he said he just didn't get injured all year yeah um you know so stretching he was done that stretching, actually, I, exactly that inspired me i've been stretching a lot yeah. since we spoke yeah. to him and i've been doing you know trying to yoga once a week and doing other stretching sessions yeah and so he's got a lot of those routines on there and and then obviously just you know annoyingly uh, beautiful videos of cycling in the spanish mountains so well, mate you're gonna well, yeah, you're yeah. gonna be able to if enjoy that already. very soon as well uh yeah and i'm just uh, excited to see what he does next i mean he, he um yeah there's, there's big plans i think 2024 is gonna be a massive year for him as well yeah i mean any, any just the, the idea of coming up with those concepts like you know cycling around the world or going for the fastest time on different trails what a fun what a fun career to have kind of created for himself yeah yeah the the current record holder is um uh of yeah it's a scottish guy i forget his name again mark uh but he's there's a couple of amazing documentaries around his round the world uh round the world challenge so i think seeing jack like i, I can just imagine the sort of uh, the exposure he's going to get if he can take it on and honestly as an athlete i think that that he has uh, yeah he's probably mark beaumont his name is i think I, I, jack seems like he's Zoom with got, the shot. yeah i think he's probably uh, a better athlete than mark and uh but it's to be able to do that kind of record is the logistics behind yeah. it i think is the is the biggest challenge and uh but also he seems to have got that shit nailed yeah, as well yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it's like a giant adventure race, isn't it? You're dealing with sort of, you know, logistics and timing and borders and visas and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. 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 And he's, I think one of his first ones was going that the race across Europe as well. So he's done, he's done parts of what he would need to do to get it done. And uh, yeah, kudos. What a legend. Um, but yeah, there's a big race coming up this weekend in, in Hong Kong. Yeah, so you're off, you're off to uh, Hong, Hong Kong 100? Yeah, an, an iconic ultra that has been on my, uh, on my kind of like bucket list for, for a long time. So uh, yeah, Janet, Janet and Steve has sort of welcomed us, us, uh, us up to go, and, to go and race. I say us, you'll be there in spirit. But um, it's uh, I've just coming off the end of a training block and I'm feeling good about it, actually. I'm going to give it a good nudge and, uh, yeah, hopefully pace it properly. Yeah, you uh, looked like you had a decent, a decent run out in uh, the US when you were over there. Yeah. A bit, yeah. Fl- a bit flatter than Hong Kong. Though. Yeah, did a, did a 50K trail race across Florida. Um, albeit with a, a, a much uh, more diminished field than we're going to be experiencing in Hong Kong 100. There was like, yeah, 15 or I think it was like 16 of us that were racing, but some good, some good races. But it will, uh, what I learned from that, and actually, interestingly, the first half of Hong Kong 100 is pretty flat. So I think it was actually quite a good training session for it. But there's, um, yeah, just pacing is so important. Uh, and I was actually chatting with Henry Lokanen, who's like a, one of the top ultra runners in Hong Kong who's moved down to Singapore recently I ran with him last weekend and he was I was just getting his advice on pacing for it and he said the toughest thing is that you get the start line and the whole ultra running community in Hong Kong is there and everyone goes out and you just end up like chatting and just going out too fast and so that is going to be my biggest focus is just uh saying hello to people at the start line and saying goodbye to them at the start line and hopefully if i do well i'll see them in the second half again yeah it's got to be much more much more fun picking them off than than getting picked off yourself yeah and i always i've I've got a terrible track record of uh of going out too far in in races and challenges so um but we'll we're going to have janet and steve on um after the after the challenge and we'll talk about some of the some of the performances and how it goes but uh they're like stalwarts of the uh, ultra running community in hong kong and this is the first solo 100k race in hong kong and uh, i think that uh, yeah, it, it's good to see it back in a physical fashion uh, once again. Yeah, really excited to see how you got on, mate. Yeah, nice one. We'll look, we'll uh, um, yeah catch up again, uh, catch up again next week or so. But um, yeah, um, uh, we'll speak soon. Good stuff, mate. Tell the truthful story if they ever ask. Stop the complaining because things ain't that bad.